Thank you, David. Always good to hear updates from our global partners. It is a gift of the Lord uh, that we're able to uh, have so many uh, from within the congregation that have been called on uh, to serve Jesus in different parts of the world. So thank you so much for sharing this morning with us and being willing to be here today. Well, it's a new month, and a new month means a new memory verse. That's right. And so it's appropriate this month. We are in John chapter 20. And uh, well, not, we're not, we're, sorry, hope you didn't get too excited. That's, that's not for a little while. We're in the book of John. We're at the end of John 10, but it's appropriate that one of the memory verses that we want to memorize is the purpose for the reason that the book of John was written. And we've seen this verse in front of us almost continuously since we've started to study this book, and so it's good for us to memorize it so we can keep in front of us at all times the reason for which John wrote his gospel. And so we're going to say it together. It's John 20, 30, and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. John 20, 30, and 31. Very good. I know it's a, it's a longer verse, but it's one that hopefully we are becoming more and more familiar with and we'll see it in front of us for the next number of weeks and hopefully by the end of the month we'll be able to say it together as a congregation. I wonder if any of you in this room have ever been to court before. I had the opportunity, you laugh, some of you must have been. I had the opportunity a few years ago to go to court with a friend of mine. And I had not been to court, I mean I've been into a court before, but not into a trial, and this was actually a trial. He was going before a judge, and uh, as a ministry to him, I wanted to be there to support him, to be there with him. And I remember how intimidating that setting was, that courtroom setting. And, and really, they begin the whole process, and once you walk in, you meet the police officers, they, they check you out, they make sure you don't have anything on you that you're not allowed to have on you when you go in the courtroom, but they begin the whole proceeding by starting with who the person is that's on trial. Who are you? And I remember they said, this is the case of, and they, they said the person's name, and then what they do is they lay out what the person has done. Here is... Pretty much what has happened. Here's what's been done. And then the, the purpose of the case is to try to determine or to defend uh, your actions. Why did you do it? And you know, it's really interesting as we've been going through this portion of John, John chapters 1 through 10, this is pretty much what Jesus has been experiencing the last number of chapters. He is on trial by the Jews. They're trying to determine who he is. They're trying to determine what he did. And they're trying to determine why he is doing it. In chapters 2 to 10, Jesus is being put on an informal trial by these leaders. They were determined to find out who he was and what he was doing. And here at the end of John chapter 10, this is the last piece of that dialogue. Jesus has already told them that he is the living water. He's already said that he's the bread of life. He's already told them that he is the light of the world. 
He said that he was the door to the sheepfold in the beginning of John, uh, John chapter 10. He told them he was the good shepherd. He even said in John chapter 8 that he pre-existed Abraham. He's proven in the first 10 chapters, friends, that he has power over nature. Remember when he calmed the storm? We dealt with that part. He's proven that he has power over physical infirmities. Here's what Jesus can do. He can calm the storm. He can heal the sick, the lame, the blind. He has power over material things. Remember, we looked at the account of Jesus feeding the 5,000, of him being able in John chapter 2 to turn water into wine. He also forgave sins. The woman caught in adultery. And soon... Next chapter, will witness his power over death. This that we're going to look at today, church, is a transitional section of John. It's closing up this informal questioning and this dialogue between Jesus and the Jews, and it's preparing us for the road to Calvary. And, and I just to give you hope, behind, beyond hope, I, I was putting together this week a 2020 sermon calendar, trying to get all the messages planned out. We are going to get through the book of John in 2020. All right, it is, it's going to happen. Yeah, we got some clouds, good. It's not going to happen until December 2020. But, but we're going to get through the book of John in 2020. And, and ironically enough, this is a shifting point. And from this point forward in the book, we're going to shift our focus from the person of Jesus, who is Jesus, to the work of of Jesus. What did Jesus do? And the two are positively and decisively connected, no doubt about it. But John has truly spent the first 10 chapters of his gospel in an exposition of the person of Jesus. And now he's shifting to the great work of Jesus. If you had to simply, now this is again, I like to oversimplify things for us. It helps me. But if we had to oversimplify it and break it down in a, in a simple way, John chapters 1 through 10, primary theme, who is Jesus? Secondary theme, what did he do? In John chapters 11, 21, the primary theme becomes, what did Jesus do? The secondary theme, who is Jesus? And so as we make the turn onto the road to Calvary and we press towards the second half of John, we must make the turn without any reservation that Jesus is indeed who he says he was, the Messiah, the Son of God. Today we're going to be in John chapter 10, the end of John chapter 10, verses 22 to 42. Go ahead and turn there. John 10, 22 to 42. Let's pray. Father, you have proven in your word that there is great unity between you and your Son and your Holy Spirit. That you indeed are one. And Lord, it is our prayer as we prayed last week, it is our prayer every week, as it should, that we would be one. That you would unite us, Lord. And, and one of the common ways that you do this today in the church is by uniting us around your word. And so it's around your word that we gather now as a community of believers who have been called according to a purpose 
and placed right here today for this specific time and this specific text. Lord, we trust that you have something for us here today. Lord, we know your spirit's going to work, that he's alive, that he's active, that your word is powerful. And Father, we do not doubt in any way that he intends to use your word today to change our hearts, to change our minds, to draw us into a deeper relationship with you and a deeper relationship with one another. And so, Lord, we lean into you. And we pray now that you would have your work in this time we have together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. John chapter 10, verses 22 to 42. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, for no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, You are blaspheming because I said I am the son of God. If I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. What's going on here? Well, it's Hanukkah. That's the time of year that it is in Jerusalem. It's the Feast of Maccabees, or the Feast of Dedication. And, and this time, this celebration that, that they were experiencing here at the beginning of this text, it was established around 164 B.C. And it was established to rededicate the temple. Some of you that remember uh, in history, in 167 B.C., Antiochus Epiphanes, who was king of Syria at the time, he ransacked Jerusalem. He desecrated the temple 
And he did so, if you remember, he offered the sacrifice of a pig on the altar of Zeus in the temple. And this event became known as the abomination of desolation. And Antiochus was seeking to prohibit the growth of Judaism and to Hellenize those who claimed to be Jews. And so the Lord raised up a Jewish soldier. His name was Judas Maccabeus. And he pulled together a band of fellow warriors. And they revolted against Antiochus. And they crushed the Greek forces and they took back the temple. Now think about how amazing of a victory that would be. The temple was in the hands of a pagan king forcing the people of Israel to make regular sacrifices on the altar to a pagan god. And when they recaptured the temple and won the victory, there was great celebration and they established the Feast of Dedication shortly after that. Today we call this holiday Hanukkah. And and those of you that know, uh, Hanukkah is celebrated over eight days. Does, Does anybody know why? It's celebrated over eight days. It's a very special account. When they recaptured the temple and they took it back over, they moved all of the sacred objects of Israel back into the temple and they put them back into their rightful place. You see, Antiochus Epiphanes came in and he got rid of everything. So they came back in, they, they retook the temple, they put everything back and they took a day's worth of oil And they put it in one of the candles, and they lit that candle, that menorah. And on one day's amount of oil, it is said that that candle burned for eight nights. Eight nights. And so Hanukkah is celebrated over that eight-day period to remember the lighting of that candle in that miraculous event. Jesus is teaching in Solomon's colonnade in the temple here, on Solomon's porch. And you see a picture of Solomon's porch with all of the grand columns. This is where Jesus is. And it is wintertime. It's cold. It gets to be in the 40s around this time of year. And it's the time of year in Jerusalem where they experience the most rainfall. So a question that came to my mind this week, wasn't Jesus cold? (laughs) Wasn't he cold? I mean, I was cold yesterday, and it wasn't 40 degrees. We were outside, fall day. I mean, he's teaching out in the open columns, low 50s, high 40s. Is he cold? And you know, uh, one of the things, as I was asking that question, curiosity got a hold of me, and I ran down a rabbit trail, and I began to wonder how they may have heated the ancient temples. And you know that they had central air back then. They actually, they did. They had central, they actually heated the underneath of the temples because what does hot air do hot air rises and so they would heat below the floors and they would run pipes up and it would warm the floors in sense warming the open areas where they would have been teaching and so perhaps it's a little chilly but not unbearable and Jesus is here and he's teaching and he had been using a figure of speech what have we been looking at for the last three weeks the good shepherd And the people, they're they're getting a little frustrated. The Jews that have heard this teaching, they come to him and they say, listen, tell us plainly. Enough with this figure of speech. How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, just tell us. 
Jesus' answers interesting to him. He says, I've already told you. You didn't believe me. He takes them back to his works. The works that I do in verse 25, I do in my Father's name. They bear witness about me. So why have they not believed? Why haven't they believed? They've seen Jesus do these works. They've heard his teaching. What was keeping them from belief? The answer, friends, is is clear. It's plain. It's in verse 26. What does Jesus say? You do not believe. Why? Because you are not among my sheep. Only Jesus' sheep can believe on the person and the work of Jesus. Jesus summarizes all of John chapter 10 verses 1 to 21 with two verses. And so if you want to make a clear and concise summary, those of us in here who are educators appreciate this. When you have a lot of content, it's really nice to be able to sum it all up in two verses. And so this is what Jesus does. 1 to 21, a lot of content on the good shepherd. And verses 27 and 28, he sums all of that content up into these two verses. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And for the sheep who hear his voice, the sheep he knows, the sheep who follows, we've talked about this in previous weeks, there are precious and eternal treasures to be had. And so Jesus unpacks them in verse 28. I give them eternal life. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. What did he say in John 8, 51? Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. So as our good shepherd, what does Jesus do? This is one of the things, one of the truths we were looking at over the last number of weeks. He's our abundant provider. He gives us eternal life. He gives us freedom from death's captivity. He gives us protection from the thief and the stranger and the wolf. And none can prevail in snatching us out of the good shepherd's hand. It cannot happen. It cannot happen. The protection of the sheep and the security of the flock is grounded in the greatness of God over any power that would attempt to snatch us away verse 29 this is beautiful how he connects it first in verse 28 he says no one can snatch them from my hand but they're not believing in jesus remember they're questioning jesus so how powerful is that statement to them it probably doesn't hold much water but look at what he does in verse 29 my father who has given them to me is greater than all And no one is able to snatch them out of whose hand? The Father's hand. So if it's not enough for you that no one can snatch you out of my hand, believe that no one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. So first, Jesus reminds the Jews that his sheep have been given to him by the Father. Did you ever think about that, friends? We Those of us that are in Christ, those of us that know the Lord, we were a gift from the Father to the Son. And because of the Father's greatness 
and his faithfulness to be exactly who he says he is, there is none that can snatch us away. What do we sing? We're going to sing it later today. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever what? Pluck me from his hand. And there's unity here in verses 28 and 29. Jesus begins by proclaiming that no one can snatch us from his hand. Then he moves to show us that no one can snatch us from the Father's hand. And church, it's this very truth that undergirds what Paul so masterfully communicates in Romans chapter 8. Another chapter of Romans that if you haven't read it for a while, go home and read Romans 8. I promise you'll be encouraged. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. How powerful is that? That means this, if if you're sitting here today and you're part of the sheepfold, of the Lord, and you feel like you don't measure up, perhaps there's some of you that feel that way today. Perhaps some of you feel a little guilt, maybe shame. Maybe there's some discouragement in the room today. Maybe some burdens of past sins are weighing heavily on you. Take heart, church. Nothing can snatch the sheep who are part of the fold from the hand of Jesus. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. In Christ Jesus. And the reason for this is because the mission of the Son and the mission of the Father are perfectly and wholly united. Look at verse 30, one of Jesus' most powerful statements of deity. In verse 30, I and the Father are one. And you know, it's, it, it may be, as, as the Jews heard this, this may be one of those truths that were new to them, but should never have been new. It was always true. And I love from the very beginning of their history as a people, when the Lord called them into community together, and He gave them a law, He gave them something that they had begun the practice of saying almost every single day. It's called the Shema. And how does it start? Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. One. It's beautiful. A foreshadowing to this truth. A truth that was uttered by the nation in its most early and formative stages. Before they were even truly a people group. One powerful truth to unite a nation to unite a legacy together. Emmanuel, God with us. The Lord our righteousness. The Lord is one. And so Jesus is clearly answering, he's plainly answering the question that they ask him. Are you the Christ? It doesn't get any more plain than this. I and the Father are one. Yes. He is the Messiah. And he's also so much more. And who he is and his faithfulness to keep his word are intimately connected to our eternal security. Because God is faithful to be who he is and do what he says he's going to do, none can snatch us from his hand. And so what is the Jews' response here, right? It doesn't surprise us. We see this frequently when Jesus is interacting with the Jews, when he's communicating beautiful truths to them, the response of the Jews 
is to pick up stones to stone him. In the Jews' eyes, he's committed blasphemy, making himself equal with God. And Jesus isn't interesting here. He's not interested in defending himself. He doesn't need to defend himself. They've already revealed their blindness and their inability through the first ten chapters of the book to see who he is. He now leans into the works that he has done. Look at verse 32. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. Where do his works come from? From the Father. I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? Once again, Jesus rests on his agreement with the, uh, an authority from the Father. His authority comes from God the Father. He has done many good works in their presence. And the origin of those works came from his Father. And would they truly stone him for healing a blind man on the Sabbath? Or healing the man by the pool on the Sabbath? Would they dare take the life of one who has displayed the power to make man whole? And their reply exposes how they plan to justify their murder. How are they going to justify this? How are they going to justify taking the life of this man who's shown himself to be powerful over so many different things, who must be from the Lord? What's their plan to justify it? Look in verse 30. The Jews answered him, 33. It's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for what? Blasphemy. Blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. And people ask the question a lot, did Jesus ever claim to be God? Did he ever claim? Certainly the Jews believed that that's what he was proclaiming. That is what they believed. In fact, they believed it so clearly and they saw it so clearly that it was in their minds that they had to stone him for blasphemy. What he said was enough to be considered blasphemous. A sin that was punishable by death in their eyes. And his response here, we have to give pause here, friends, and look closely. Because I don't know about you, but his response to them here is probably one of the most overlooked passages uh, in John. Because it's easily misunderstood. And so we want to read it first, and then we want to break it apart. Because I, I, I will admit, this is difficult how he responds to them here. Let's look in verse 34. Jesus answered them. Is it not written in your law? Remember, he's done that a few times here. I said, you are gods. If he called them gods, all these lowercase g's, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him who the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God. So what's happening here? Let's unpack this. This could be overlooked and misunderstood, so let's take our time and do it carefully. First, let's observe that Jesus is again distancing himself from their law. And remember, whenever he did this, he's meaning their misguided understandings and misapplications of the scriptures, of the law. And then Jesus quotes from the book of Psalm. Let's take a look at this. He quotes from Psalm chapter 82, verses 6, and in context, we want to look at verse 7 as well. 
Same exact thing that he just said here. I said, you are gods, son of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. So the question that should come to our minds here is, who are these lowercase g? Who are these people that God is calling gods? Or quote unquote his son. Who is God referring here uh, to here in Psalm chapter 82? You are God, son of the most high, all of you. Is he speaking of angels? Is he speaking of the judges or of prophets? Or, most likely, could he be speaking to his own people? And we know that the word of God came to the Israelite people. God gave them his word through Moses, through the kings, and through the prophets. And in that very word given to Moses, there's a peculiar title given to the people of Israel. So the question is, did God ever call the nation of Israel his sons? Or sons of God? Did he ever call the people that? Could this be talking about his own people? And the Lord said to Moses in Exodus chapter 4, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart, so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is what? My firstborn son. Sons of God. And I say to you, let my son go, that he might serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Israel is my firstborn son. Indeed, one of God's purposes for his people were that they were to be a light to the nation, revealing the Father to all of the nations that surrounded them. And just as Jesus said that he was the light of the world, he also referred to the nation of Israel, specifically Jerusalem, as the light of the world. Did he not? Look, Matthew 5, you are, speaking to the people of Israel, the light of the world. A city on a hill, specifically talking about the people in Jerusalem, cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. But on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Church, the firstborn sons, Israel, they failed to keep their side of the covenant. And in their unfaithfulness and their disobedience and their failure to make the Father known, they died. They experienced death. They rejected their Messiah and they were set forth on a path towards their own destruction. Jesus even lamented about this in the book of Matthew. If you remember, look at what he says about his people. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it. How often Would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
Jesus is saying here, look, if you who were doing the works of God as called by God, as children of God, can be called the sons of God, then why is it blasphemy when I say to you that I am the Son of God? The only begotten Son of the Father is standing in the midst of the people of Israel. The firstborn Son of the Most High, the Christ. And Jesus reminds them here that the Scriptures cannot be broken. The words of God are true, and His disciples, His sheep, abide in and follow his word he was not speaking his own words he was speaking the words that his father had given him look at john 12 for i have not spoken on my own authority but the father who sent me has himself given me a commandment what to say and what to speak jesus both as god and as man speaks the words of god he succeeds when Israel failed. He succeeds. John 8, 31, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. So here we have Jesus, set apart by the Father, sent into the world by the Father, claiming oneness and equality with the Father. He's speaking the words of God. He's perfectly imitating the behaviors of God. He's forgiving sin. He's healing the sick. He's shepherding the flock. He's abundantly providing. He's boldly protecting. And he's graciously loving. And ultimately, where he's standing right now, amongst these columns, in the colonnade of Solomon, what was one of Solomon's most notorious characteristics and attributes? He was wise, but why was he wise? Because he was a great judge. It's no irony that Jesus is standing right here, right now, in these columns, quoting from Psalm 82, which in the minds of the people who he's quoting it to, it would be continuing on into verse 8. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. So beautiful, Jesus' use of the scripture. So beautiful. It's not an irony that he's standing on Solomon's porch delivering this message. For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and that those who see may become blind. What is Jesus doing here? He's deflecting their anger. He's deflecting their hostility. He's not resolving the matter. He's not alleviating the charge. He's buying time for himself to give one final invitation before they try to arrest him again. Look down at verses 37 and 38. One final invitation in this long dialogue that he's had with the Jews. Verse 37. If I am not doing the works of my Father then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Church, these are the words of a man who needs no defense. If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. Don't believe me. He's not desperately trying to convince them against their wills 
He's not trying to defend his cause or build some kingdom unto himself here on earth. He knows what the Lord's plans are, what the Father's plans are for himself. If I'm doing the works of the Father and you don't believe me, then believe the works. Perhaps if he can get them to shift their focus from his person to his works, as they will be confronted over and over again with these powerful and miraculous works that he does, perhaps then they would begin to recognize that just as Jesus said, he is in the Father and the Father is in him. Just as he did in verse 30, Jesus again makes this statement of unity. One at the end of verse 30 and one again here. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. It's a statement of unity, church. And it's beautiful how at the end of both of those paragraphs, Jesus closes with a statement of oneness and unity with the Father. Two very strong and bold professions of His deity. And maybe soon they will come to understand, maybe soon we will come to understand the truth of one of these linchpin verses in all of John. John chapter 5, verse 19. We almost look at this every week because it's so powerfully connected to what Jesus is doing and who He is. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. And it's important for us to pause and understand Jesus is not saying here that believing the works automatically leads to a saving faith. That's not what he's saying because the two are connected to one another intimately and importantly in regards to our salvation. But what he's saying is that for some, and perhaps some of you, this is your testimony. I know I have friends who this is their testimony. For some, the Lord will use the works to reveal the faithfulness of the person, right? And some of us have these incredible testimonies of understanding for the first time. I know for, for many, it's the resurrection. And when we are confronted with the evidence and, and the true reality that indeed Jesus rose from the dead, physically defeating death, for many, it's that that the Lord uses to help draw them in to a relationship with himself. And so, The works are not enough to save simply believing in the works, but the works God is able to use to help draw men and draw women unto himself so that they might be saved. Man cannot live by bread alone. The works are the bread. For some, they're physically sustaining. But by every word that comes from the mouth of God, Jesus speaks the words of God. We come to know a person by hearing what they say, And seeing what they do. And perhaps for some, believing and seeing what Jesus is able to do would serve as a way for them to eventually hear what he was saying. But not the case here, is it? Look at verse 39. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Again, they sought to have him arrested. And now Jesus goes back to the beginning as we make this transitional turn and open the book of John into chapter 11 next week. Look at what happens here in verses 40 to 42. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, 
And they said, John did no sign. But everything John said about this man was true. And many believed in him now. And in him there, sorry. The true shift of focus is clearly evident here. Jesus is moving away from the public square. If you notice, so much of the time that we've spent in John, really John chapter 6 through John chapter 11, Jesus has been in or around the temple. He's been in and around public discourse with the people. And now he's removing himself from the public square and going back to the place where his physical ministry on earth began. There was a way that had been prepared by John. There was protection there. There were people there who had come to believe in him. In the public, he was scorned. He was rejected. But among the common people outside of the city, away from the Pharisees, away from the religious leaders, we see evidence of genuine belief. And it could be that his adversaries saw his retreat as a white flag. You know what? These people, they don't accept me. It's not working. They keep rejecting me. They keep trying, they keep trying to kill me. How many times in John chapter 6 to 10 do we see the people want to try to, they're trying to kill Jesus, to murder him. So they could see it as a surrender. Perhaps they believed that by going back to the place where it all began, Jesus was admitting defeat and the failure of his mission. But we know that's not true, right? Aren't we so thankful today that that's not true? Jesus was retreating not from fear of persecution or arrest. He knew that was coming. Not because of a failed ministry experience. He was retreating because the Father had work for him to do in Bethany. In Bethany, a man lay ill. He was about to die. His name was Lazarus. And next week, we'll begin to unpack how Jesus changes Lazarus' life forever. The question that we ask oftentimes at the end of our time together is how might our lives look in light of these realities? And church, to, to be truthful with you, I was probably most engaged and most encouraged this week in the text, in the part of the text that talked about how nothing can snatch us from the Father's hand. Because I will tell you, we live in a culture, do we not, that's quick to condemn. We live in a culture that's very good at making us feel shameful. That making us feel like we're never, have any of you felt this week that you just can't ever do enough? You just can't ever do enough. They it's a culture that's very good that, that makes us feel with feelings of guilt, feelings of fear, anxiety. And take hope, church, that there is nothing that can snatch you from the hand of the Son. There is nothing that can snatch you from the hand of the Father. Our hope is in Christ. And just as He's shown Himself to be true through the first 10 chapters of this book, we're going to continue to uncover and expose his faithfulness over and over and over again. And friends, one of the most countercultural ways that we can live, as our team is going to come and, and close us in a final number today, is with gratitude. With gratitude, with thankfulness for this reality, for this truth. 
And, and boy, if we knew it was true that nothing could separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus, wouldn't we live so thankfully all the time? When our world is so hopeless and desperate, wouldn't we have something of great hope to hold on to? I pray that we might find that this week as we journey together. Team. Father, it occurs to me as we sing that song that at the death of your son, Satan thought that he had won some great victory. He had thought that for once and for all, he had scattered the flock, destroyed the sheepfold. was the end. And Lord, as we open the book of Acts, we're confronted with how no power of hell and no scheme of man could ever pluck your sheep from your hand. As you beautifully and wonderfully pulled together a group of men on which you built your church just as you promised Peter you would do. And here we stand today, Lord, and we give you glory at hundreds of years later just as you are one with the Father. We can be one with one another. And because you are our righteousness, we can stand in righteousness before the Father. Thank you, Lord, for this great work. May it change our hearts. May it motivate our minds. May it cause us to love greatly those that you bring into our pathways this week. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a wonderful week in Jesus. We'll see you next week.